Now, for those of you who are, who are who are married here today or who have been married, think about how you met your spouse, the circumstances surrounding uh, that encounter. Think about how you popped the question, uh, men or women, how you received that question. What were the experiences? Now, I doubt that any of your proposals were nearly as elaborate as the ones we see today. Uh, it has become like competitive marriage proposals or something with the dawn of YouTube and social media and everything. I mean, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling the, the links that people go to ask someone to marry them now and the, how they get this whole set up with the flash mobs and all this stuff. I think it's kind of over-the-top ridiculous, but uh, no, no condemnation if that's how you go. Um, I, I, there, I'm going to throw a photo up here. I've never done anything like this before, but I got Brooke's permission. This is, this is the day that I asked Brooke to, to be my wife. Uh, so this was a few hours before I popped the question. This is on the campus of Hardin-Simmons University in Abilene, Texas. And, and, uh, my proposal involved a cassette recorder. And so that tells you something. <laughs> dates me a little bit. This is our earliest selfie, I think. So, uh, this is, a little different, but I don't have a photo of the day several weeks later when she said yes, but uh, no, no, she she didn't delay. Um, all right, you can take our picture down, that's fine. Uh, a much younger, hairier version of me, I know you've, some of you wanted to see that. My wife has not changed, she's only gotten more beautiful, and uh, but you see what's happened to me. Um, you know, the... Some of you, if you're not married, and, uh, and so singles, how, how do you imagine meeting the one? Uh, what, do you, what do you picture that looking like? How, how would you like this to happen? How would you pop the question? How would you, how would you uh, want to be asked? Um, so you, we think about these things. Well, for those, or I'm, I'm guessing that nobody here has or would ever plan a meeting and an, and an engagement like we find here in Ruth chapter 3. And I realize we haven't read the chapter, but if, you've, if you're familiar with this story, and we'll see it in just a moment, gleaning barley, <laughs> it's probably not part of your experience, um, a threshing floor, uncovering feet, saying something like, spread your wing over me, I think that would be a little weird. Um, and so, so 3,000 years later, as we, as we read this story and as we look at it together this morning, it, it sounds strange. Honestly, it makes you a little bit uncomfortable. It sounds a little risque, as we'll see how this story unfolds in the darkness of that um, night there at Israel. And so, well, let, me, let me back up for those that are just joining us here. I'll give you a quick review. Chapter 1, it hits us with the dark and frowning providences of God. So it's a very, very dark chapter. Naomi left the land of Judah, her land, during famine. And it was not a wise choice, I don't think. And, and she, she left with her husband and her two sons, only to lose her husband and two sons to death in Moab, pagan Moab. She's left absolutely destitute. And, and, and yet the chapter ends, chapter one ends with this little ray of hope. And, and, it, and it comes in the form of the fact that God sent rain to Judah again, so the drought came to an end, and so she decides to return home. And, and with her, though, her daughter-in-law, Ruth, goes. And she goes, having committed uh, herself to, to Naomi and to Naomi's God and to Naomi's people. And, and so 
There's this beautiful scene, and, and the chapter ends, though, with, with Naomi just overwhelmed by all of her losses. And she, this is where she says, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter, for the Lord has dealt bitterly with me, the Shaddai. And, and so she's unaware that, that God is very much ready to intervene in her life and to provide for her, and she just can't see it. And so that's, so that's chapter one, a very dark scene. Chapter two, though, is full of hope. This is where we, we were, were last week. And, and so we have these smiling providences of God. Remember, Ruth just happened to stumble upon the field of Boaz. And this Boaz just happened to be a close relative of Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech, who, and was also one of a kinsman redeemers. And, and, and not only that, but Boaz just happened to come to the field and check on the progress of the harvest at the time Ruth was there. So we have these these uh, tongue-in-cheek just kind of coincidences that are happening, but it's all God's orchestration of, of, of this meeting and this encounter between this Moabite woman, Ruth, and Boaz, this leading Israelite man. And so after Boaz realize, realizes who Ruth is, this is the one who came to take refuge under the wings of Yahweh. Then he extends this incredible kindness to Ruth. He, remember, he elevates her status and gives her kind of special privileges there. He gives her a hot meal. He, he loads her up with grain when he sends her back. He protects her. And so, so he gives her rights to continue to work and, and, and to glean in his field. And so he, he will continue to provide for her needs through the harvest. And so Ruth doesn't know what to make of all of this. All this kindness that this man has shown to her. So she goes home, tells Naomi about the day. Now look back in chapter 2. And, and we're going to just read the last, last few verses of chapter 2 to catch us up. Verse 19, Ruth 2. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And this is the, again, this is the, this is where the story changes. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. We're Goel in Hebrew, our kinsmen redeemers. One who, who has the opportunity and responsibility in a sense to, to provide for the needs of of Naomi and of, uh, be, uh, uh, because he's a close relative of her deceased husband. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with this young woman, with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. And so, after hearing this report, this news from, from Ruth, Naomi's mourning turns into dancing. She, 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 her despair just springs forth in hope. And what we're going to see today is her hope springs forth in action. She begins to, to do things and to make plans. How, how should, how would Naomi respond to all of this that's taken place? How, how would they, how, how should they interpret Boaz's kindnesses? Should they play the wait and see game? Or should they become, be more direct and assertive? So verse 23, so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, is how the chapter ends, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, about seven weeks, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So apparently they did wait a while, 
They waited, watched. Ruth continued to work and glean the fields day after day. And, and they waited. They waited. Not, not much more happened for, for that period. Uh, and, and so the question for us today, and I think this is where Ruth is going to connect with us, is when you are in a desperate situation, and you may be here today, and if you're not now, you will be. When you're in a desperate situation, and you see what seems to be a God-given way out, what does faith and trust in God look like? What, is it, what does it look like? What does faith in action, hope in action really look like? Should you, should you spring into action, seize the day by, by force of your own hand and just kind of force things through? Is that, is that really what faith looks like and hope in the Lord looks like? Or should you just do nothing and leave it all to God, just let go and let God, and just passively wait and see? What do you, is that faith? Is that really what we're looking for? How does true hope, true faith act? What does a living hope and a living God look like in just everyday life where the rubber meets the road? Is it passive? Is it active? Is it something in between? Well, Ruth 3 helps us see what hope, what, what hope in action looks like. And I think we see it in in Naomi and in Ruth and in Boaz, and we see it in this chapter. You remember the first week that we were in Ruth, if you were here with us, I quoted part of the Belgic Confession on a statement on God's providence. And part of that statement says that God rules and governs everything according to His holy will so that nothing happens in this world without His appointment. Now I think Ruth... And Naomi and Boaz would all affirm that statement. But they're not, as we'll see, not just sitting around just waiting and twiddling their thumbs and waiting to see what God appoints. Well, He's going to do whatever He wants to do anyway, so we'll just passively sit and watch. That's not what we see in Ruth 3. And so what does hope in action look like? That's the question. First thing, make four statements about this in, in this chapter. The first thing is that hope in action takes calculated risks takes calculated risk. It doesn't just throw caution to the wind. It's not careless or reckless, but it's certainly not stagnant and it's not timid. So let's see, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? So she's treating Ruth as her very own daughter. She wants a secure and permanent home for Ruth, one that will that will remain after Naomi's dead and gone. Remember, she's a she's a Moabite, she's a foreigner in Israel. She has very low, low status in the land. And now when Naomi dies, then her status drops even further. She's kind of got some standing because of her attachment to Naomi, but that's going to be gone someday. So, so Naomi's concerned for this. And, and remember, this is, this is exactly what Naomi asked for back in chapter 1. She prayed that, the, that God would give her rest, settled security. Now in Naomi's mind, that, the best chance for that chance was in Moab. And, and she, doesn't under, she didn't understand. She assumed it would come there. But here she's going to plan and work in answer to her own prayer back in chapter 1. And so she's going to she's going to seize this providential opportunity that's come to them. And and so verse two, is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, behold, 
is look, guess, guess what? He is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Boaz will be alone, will be in this secluded spot where he and Ruth can, can speak privately under the cover of darkness. This is, there's an opportunity here, Ruth. Let's not miss it. Now, winnowing, that's something we're all familiar with, isn't it? I mean, all of you who gleaned, I asked this question last week, but gleaned before, you probably also winnowed then, right? Uh, but winnowing is after the grain uh, is, is threshed, is beaten to remove the kernels from the chaff and the stalk. They would, they would, they would, the winnower would toss the crop up in the air using a rake or a shovel or some kind of fork, throw it up in the air, and the, those Mediterranean breezes would, would, would pass by and blow that chaff away, and the grain would fall back down. So they just keep tossing up and let the chaff blow along. And so the grain would fall down. They'd pile the, the grain up and these piles. And so on the, this would happen on the threshing floor, kind of up on a hillside, and the winds would blow. And, and so at night, the, the farmers and some of his workers would, would stand guard and would, would lay and sleep up there in different nooks and corners of the threshing floor and guard those piles of grain. So that's the scene here. And and so so... She, she says, he's, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Verse 3, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. Saying, bathe, put on some perfume, put on nice clothes, you know, no sweatpants, take the curlers out of your hair, whatever, whatever. And, 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 and make yourself attractive. This is a special night. This is an opportunity, a little window of opportunity. Now again, I mean, be honest, I get a little uneasy here. There's a, there's a Reba McIntyre song, Fancy. Some of you know this. I think maybe somebody else did it before her. But I, I was thinking of those lyrics as I was thinking about this. Here's your one chance, Fancy, don't let me down. To get out of, to get out of destitution, find some uh, benevolent, you know, wealthy man, and let's get her, get her all dolled up and send her out there. That's almost what this sounds like. I'm not saying it's what it is. But I'm just, I just, I'd rather just state the obvious. This is a little, little makes us a little squirmish. Um, so, so, hang on. Now. All right. So, so get, get, get dressed up, clean yourself up. He says, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Be patient. Be unseen. Be unheard until just the right moment. But when he lies down, verse 4, observe the place where he lies. So stay in the shadows, watch over him. Now this also sounds a little creepy to me. <laughs> stay there and watch him sleep. I mean, that just sounds weird. Um, but, but make sure you got the right guy. That's one thing. It's dark and shadows and there's other people sleeping around. So observe him, see where he lays and watch and wait till he sleeps. And then, again, it just gets weirder. Go and uncover his feet and lie down. That seems awkward. Pull, saying, pull back the. They would they would sleep under their large cloak, their robe, and this this heavy robe, and keep them warm in those cool desert nights. And so, sleep under that robe and be tucked up underneath there like a sleeping bag. And so he's saying, pull pull up the edge of it so that his feet are exposed to the cold air, and then lay by his feet and just wait. And why? I mean, he doesn't say, we're not told for sure, and this is some, one of the challenges of looking at this 3,000 years later. And, and, but, but perhaps she's showing humility, laying at his feet, and seeking protection from Boaz, and 
It may be simply just that she knows that Boaz will wake up later. His feet get cold and chilly air. So so it says, do that. Lay down his feet and wait. And he will tell you what to do. So the last move, Naomi says, belongs to Boaz. Just just wait. Wait for his response. Verse 5, and Ruth replied, all that you say, I will do. That's trusting, isn't it? Uh, she, she responds without any questions, no, no objections raised, no needed explanation from Naomi. What are you talking about? What, what, what is this about? Why, why are we doing it this way? She takes words as, almost as a command to be obeyed, not a suggestion to be weighed. And I, again, it sounds a little edgy, doesn't it? Um, this is a, this is a very daring and risky plan. Now, one of the things that, you see, and we, we could probably already made this point in Ruth, but any time you study uh, stories and narrative in the in the scriptures, you, we we got to be careful not to make it said not to make narrative normative. So we, we're, what's something that's descriptive and it's explaining how something did happen, we don't make that prescriptive and say this is how you should do it. And so we want to we we got to be mindful of that. I, I do not recommend this strategy, young men and young women. Uh, if you're interested in a fellow or a lady. Um, so, but but, but we've got to be okay with the fact that customs 3,000 years ago in the ancient Near East look different than customs today. If, if you told them how we do it today and, and putting videos on YouTube and flash mobs, they would think we're the weirdos. So just be mindful of that. Uh, we don't know all the reasons for the specifics of this plan. There's not a lot of other examples we could look to where this kind of thing happens. Um, why didn't Ruth just go talk to him? <laughs> uh, why, why this whole drama is played out here? It's, again, it's a little weird. But what I want you to see is this, and this is the important thing, is that they're acting. They're moving towards the very thing that they're hoping in. They're, they're hoping that, that God, this is God's means of redemption. This is God's means of provision and, and a future for them. And so they're walking toward that. They're making plans to, to move toward the very thing that they're hoping in. And it's a good thing that they're hoping in. It's a, it's a godly thing. It's a God, um, a God provided thing to have this Goel, this Redeemer. And is it risky? Yes. They don't know how Boaz, as this righteous, Israelite, how he's going to respond, how he's going to interpret this gesture from Ruth. They don't know. They, maybe, maybe they were wrong. Maybe they misinterpreted Boaz's kindnesses to Ruth. They thought it was, there were some romantic uh, elements to that, but there, maybe that wasn't existing. He was just being kind like he is to others. But here's the bottom line. When hope comes alive in you, when you see God at work, action must be taken. This is the thing I think this teaches us. There, there will always be factors we do not understand. There will always be those things that are out of our control. There will always be calculated risks in following the Lord. But it's our hope, it's our trust in God that allows us to move forward in embracing those risks and trusting Him and, and to plan and to act. It's not, it's not contrary to trusting God to plan and to act. And, and I think it's very clear here. This is what we see. That without real living hope, we will never make plans. We will, we will never venture out. We will never take risks. We will stop 
dreaming. Stop moving. We will become stagnant. And, 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 and so this planning and strategizing of Naomi and Ruth, it's born out of this revived hope. Spiritual discernment. That's what's, that's what's, that's what's motivating them. They, be, they begin to see God's fingerprints. They begin to see His providence. And they, and, they, and they see God working and so they act. Is it the right, the right method? I, I don't know if there would be a better way. That's not ours to parse the method. That does not concern the narrator. That does not concern the Spirit of God who inspired this passage. He, does, he makes no comment on whether this is a good or bad plan. What he's, what the, the emphasis here is just, they're, they're moving. They're hopeful in God. There's hope in God and they, they go. Understanding God's providence, trusting, hoping in the Lord doesn't make us passive so that we just wait for events to unfold. It gives us courage to seize opportunities that, that God brings to us. And any success, and this is the reality, any success that comes from Naomi's plan here, sounds like it's just her doing and it's just all in her mind, but, and there is careful planning, but it's, it, any success is because of the Lord. It's the Lord who's giving full payment, who's giving His just wages to Ruth. This is what was prayed for back in chapter 2, to Ruth for her kindness. So theologically, then, the Lord is acting in Naomi's acts. He's at work. Her plans execute God's plans. So that's the, that's the first thing. This, this hope in action, it takes calculated risks. It's not stagnant. Second, the thing we see, learn about what hope in action looks like. It, it makes bold declaration. It makes bold declaration. So Ruth turns the plan into action. She and then we're going to see she takes it further than, than Naomi even intended. So verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly, quietly, and uncovered his feet and laid down. So not only did she say she would follow her plan, but she, she actually does it. The wording in verse 7 follows verse 4 exactly. She's doing exactly what she's told. Boaz and Ruth are now together in this very, <laughs> very under very strange, irregular circumstances. So it's not just theory. It's, this is happening. They're there in, on the threshing floor. He's sleeping. She's uncovered his feet and laying by them in this dark, secluded place. And so, again, we squirm a little with fear and excitement. What might transpire? So, now comes the decisive moment. Time passes. The air cools. Verse 8, at midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, look, what? A woman lay at his feet. The man was startled. literally means shivered. It's... it's Physical reaction is from the chill on his feet and, and the idea. I mean, so you've, you've been camping before. I remember I don't know, several years ago, uh, a few of us guys were um, camping on Osobah Island, and it was cold, was it not? <laughs> it was cold. Now, I'm kind of a fair-weather camper anyway, but this was, this was really cold. And, and so tent camping, and, and uh, I mean, like when we're going over on the water, water came up, spray came up, and froze on you. That kind of cold, and so windy, cold, and so you're you're in the sleeping bag, and 
And But if, if you got any body part that managed to kind of slide out during the night, man, you woke up and, whoo, and you got it back in that sleeping bag. So, I mean, that's kind of the scene that I get. But you see, you see his feet are uncovered, and he wakes up from the cold. He shivers. And so he, he, he goes, reaches down, covers his feet back up, and, and looks at his feet, and whoa, whoa, <laughs> there's a woman down there. And he doesn't know who she is. He's, and so now he's, he's awake, fully alert. Yeah. Um, and so, so this, this, again, he's this honorable, leading man in Israel. Single man, older man. But he's face to face now with this unknown woman in, in a secluded corner of the threshing floor at night. He's shocked. So verse 9, he said, like, good question, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Now she, she omits the Moabitess. Remember in chapter 2 we saw that phrase, that expression uh, to describe her over and over. Ruth, the Moabitess, the Moabite woman, the Moabite woman. She referred to herself, others referred to her. She doesn't, and she, even the word she chooses here for servant is different. She, remember she called herself a servant at the end of chapter 2 and it was the lowest of the low uh, in terms of class of people. Here it's, an, it's a different word. It's, it's a higher standing. Still servant, but it's, it's different. She, this is an improved status. What she's, she's identifying herself as an eligible bachelorette here. This is a, this is a woman of standing that she, he could conceivably marry. And so, remember the script that Naomi gave her. <laughs> you lie there, wait till he wakes up, and then just see what happens. See how he responds. Well, she departs from the script here. I just think of, you know, presidents and they have their teleprompters and when they go off script and they just start talking and the speech writers and the, the advisors are just freaking out, you know, oh, please don't say anything, you know, stupid here. I know we will never have a possibility of a scenario like that with our president-elect Trump, but, um, but, but we, we expect Ruth to, again, to wait for Boaz to respond. And we expect for Boaz to instruct Ruth, but instead Ruth just keeps talking. And she says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Spread your wings, a symbol of protection. We talked about this last week. And, and again, you've heard that phrase before, haven't you? It's, a, it's, it's actually a singular here. It says wings, but it's really just spread your wing." Some of your translations may say cloak or garment, and, and, and that it is translated that way, but I think this is better. Spread your wing, because we saw this exact same word in plural last week in chapter 2, verse 12. The, the wings of refuge, the wings of the Lord. Boaz prayed that, that Yahweh would protect Ruth under his wings, the wings that she had come to take refuge under. So Ruth is now asking Boaz to be the means of God's protection. And so there, there is one other place in, in Scripture where this, this word is used, this phrase is used in relationship to a love relationship. And you don't have to turn there, but it's in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8. And it's, it's the Lord speaking to His people and He's describing Israel as this young maiden that that, 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 that he took as his wife. And so let me just read it. The Lord said to Israel, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age 
for love and I spread the corner of my garment over you. It's the same word though. I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness and I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. This is a a phrase that definitely has that, that marital language. Spread your wing over me for you are a redeemer. It's clear it's clear that Ruth means nothing improper by that last phrase here. When she says, you are a redeemer. She's not seeking fornication. She's not, she's not asking that. I know it could get a little uneasy with words like this. But she's seeking a future. She's seeking provision. You're a redeemer. That's what the emphasis was in this kinsman-redeemer language. She's going boldly out on a limb and, in a sense, helping him propose to her. <laughs> and this is the point. There, hope in action. It takes. It makes bold declaration. There's. There's nothing ungodly about being bold and clear. There's nothing. This is not being manipulative. This is not being controlling. If she were to go about this in the flesh, then then she would try to seduce him and then get him to 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 get him obligated to her by that seduction. But that's not what she's doing. She doesn't, she's not suggesting anything wrong or improper here. It's not even really, again, the emphasis isn't on romance. That's not, that's not it. It's about helping Naomi mostly. She's really, he's really Naomi's redeemer. This has to do with Elimelech's connection. She's saying redeem Naomi and, and, and included in that is again the prospect of marriage, but that's not the focus. I just say, we don't have time to elaborate on this too much, but sometimes there's a, there seems to be at least a fine line between bold action and trying to manipulate circumstances. And we can, we can kind of be unsure where that stands. But if, it, if, on, if on appearance there's that fine line, the reality is that inside of us there is a huge difference. What motivates us is, is it, polar opposites. And this is, this is what I think we see. There's, there's a, there can be a fleshly motivation to try to control, to try to manipulate, to try to connive. And there can be a, there can be a noble, godly uh, motivation that's, that's bold and it's clear and it's, it's assertive. But those are two totally different things. One is self-trust. One is God-trust. Trust in the Lord. And so... Uh, but but again, hope and action. There there's there's confidence. There's there's boldness. There's clarity. There's there's these kind of de- declarations like this. And so we see it in Ruth. The, now that's a that's a startling way to wake up. Uh, back to the story here. That from a peaceful night's sleep, he's asleep, peacefully asleep after a a, a, a big meal and a happy time with celebrating with the other workers and. And the next moment he's wakened in this seemingly com- compromised situation being asked to marry um, this Moabite woman. How will he respond? <laughs> How would you respond? <laughs> will he be annoyed? Will he be offended? Will he be angered? Will he be embarrassed? Well, let's see. And that brings us to the third Third thing we learn about hope and action is that hope and action involves uncompromising righteousness. Uncompromising righteousness. His, 
The words that Boaz is going to say in, just in the next verse here, in verse 10, they, they relieve the tension of the scene. His response demonstrates godliness and, and patience and trust and purity and, and integrity. It's, it's beautiful. It's great. This, this, you, you see the opportunity. The natural opportunity is there for compromise, for temptation, in, in sexual sin, in all kinds of ways, to, to exploit her, to take advantage of the situation. Here's this young woman has expressed her interest in him, her need for him. In the middle of the night, she's in his tent, as it were, though not literally. And so what happens? Verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. He's referring to her kindness to Naomi that he made so much of in the last chapter. But this is a greater kindness. And that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So he's not offended by her forwardness. He seems to be flattered by it. Pleased with it. He apparently didn't think she'd ever have any interest in him because of what was likely a significant age gap. He refers to her again as his, his daughter. He's probably balding. Nothing wrong with that. Graying, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> and slowing down. But he thought she'd be more interested in, in the town's other more eligible bachelors. Maybe even some of his field workers that she spent a lot of time with and ate meals with and worked alongside. And he's strapping young Israelite men. Well, he, she, he, I think there was this assumption that that would interest her more. This may be why he's not more proactive or forthright in this story. He's a little more passive. But it's clearly, it's clearly something he's thought about as we're going to see. He's, he's already done some research. She's been on his heart, his mind. But he's, he's, he's looking into the possibility. Verse 11. He says, and now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. And for all my fellow ta- for all my tel- fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman so he grants her request he will marry her he he echoes Ruth's words to Naomi all i i will do for you all that you ask it's the very same thing Ruth said when she left that morning such a sweeping reply here it shows that this is more than just marriage this is he will fulfill those duties of the Goel. He will redeem, redeem Naomi and Ruth. He will purchase the land. He will pay off the debts. He will settle everything. He will, he will take care of them. He will provide for the needs of that family. He will, he will do it all. Why? Because of her reputation. Among those in Beth, that's what he attributes it to. All, all of my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. All, all the townsmen literally means People of the gate. The gate was the, was the place that everybody congregated. That's where everything happened. Judicial things happened and social things happened and uh, marketplace. Everything was at the gate. That represented the whole city. Everybody in the city knows that you're a worthy woman, an excellent, you would be an excellent wife, a Proverbs 31 kind of wife, and strong and trustworthy and industrious and efficient and shrewd and generous toward the needy and, 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 and you would enhance your husband's reputation and you make sacrifices for others and all of that. Ruth is this godly woman, a model wife. 
They will, they will make, and so he's this godly man, this leading Israelite man. We've already said he's a, he's a worthy man in Israel. And now we have this, this Ruth is this worthy woman. What, what a, what a match. I mean, this is good stuff. Put all those Hallmark Christmas movies to shame. <laughs> and the, this, this kind of romance. Forget the age gap. Forget the fact she's a Moabite. Okay, so it's not such a natural match. But, but in, by God's standards, this is perfect. They're both, they both love Yahweh. They trust Him. They've taken refuge under Him. They, they're kind. They're generous. They're godly. This is good. And so we can, we can hear the wedding bells ringing. And we'd like the book to just end. And they lived happily ever after. Everything was great. But we have this little bit of drama inserted in chapter, in verse 12. I mean, this is, this is how, if you could just track Ruth, the story of Ruth, we, we start here and immediately in chapter 1, we just take a quick dive. It is dark and it's troubling. And then we kind of climb up in chapter 2 and then you get in verse 12 and there's this kind of drop again. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet, uh, Yet, there is a Redeemer nearer than I. So he concedes that he is a Goel. He, he, but there, here's the rub. There's, there's one that's closer than I. There's, there's another yet unnamed relative. And, and so he, this other relative has a closer relationship, had a closer relationship to Elimelech. He, he has prior rights to serve as the Goel, as a Redeemer. So it, the, that, that right, that responsibility fell to the closest relative. And if he waived that right, then, then the next would have priority. And so, so that's what he's alluding to. And so, again, I, I think you see Boaz's godly character even in this. He, he has integrity. He, he's not scheming to beat the system. He's submitting himself to the custom. His personal preference gives Right, give, give, gives way and to the prior rights of other relatives. And so, again, this new fact injects some suspense into the story here, doesn't it? We, we just breathe a big sigh of relief and now we're, oh no. Oh no. Will Boaz lose Ruth after all? And, and it's an ironic twist when you think about it because Naomi was lamenting the fact that there was no one to care for them. Now there's too many people to care for, for, for them. There's, there's too many eligible redeemers. And so Boaz continues, verse 13. He's got a plan. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. And so... Finally, Boaz instructs Ruth, just as Naomi said he would, thought he would. So he says, remain tonight. Now, he's careful in choosing, the narrator, the writer, is careful in choosing words here. Really, Boaz is careful in giving these words. It's just a word to lodge. There's no sexual connotations at all in this word. And so they're, they're, they're in this crucible of temptation, mind you, and we're a little uncomfortable with that. But, but they prove themselves righteous. Their integrity is seen. It, it trumps passion here. And so they, she just slept there on the threshing floor that night. 
And the, the coming day, though, would bring about one or two possible results, he says. So the other kinsmen might be willing to redeem Ruth. And if so, that's good and fine, Boaz says. We say, no, that's not good. It doesn't make a good movie. It's not a good story. Uh, but the important thing is their provision. It's their future. So that's the custom, he says. That's, that's what, it's, it's the Lord's will. If the other kinsman, though, waves his right, he says, I will redeem you myself. And that's emphatic. I myself will redeem you. As the Lord lives, again, strong, forceful commitment and pledge. All Ruth needed to do was go back to sleep, rest. Worries would soon be over. Verse 14, so she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. So it's very dark. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. So she does exactly as Boaz instructed, but on her own initiative, she she gets up in the murky pre-dawn darkness and heads out, uses the cover of darkness to escape what could be a really uh, suspicious scene and embarrassing situation. So, um, and, and Ruth, share, Boaz has the same concern that Ruth has, and so he, he doesn't want anybody to get the wrong impression about their meeting at night, and the rumor mill begin to churn. Oh, you can imagine what they would say in the papers, this, this Moabitess seduced, this leading Israelite man, and... And but, so he doesn't want that. So verse 15, and he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. And, and she held it out, kind of pulling it up. And he, I used to do that with t-shirts all the time. My mom did not like that. Carry stuff around in your t-shirt, you know, and just load it up with dirt and mud pies and all that kind of stuff. But she just carried it, hold it out. And she held it out and he measured out six six measures of barley and put it on her. And she went into the city. And so... So she goes away with this, this newly threshed barley ready for immediate use. And, and it's a generous amount. I mean, just the, the way this is, is described. She, she put it, he put it on her. I mean, this is a lot of barley. And she begins the journey home. And I think the, the grain, I, I mean, it does a couple of things. One, it gives her an expla, kind of gives her a, a story. <laughs> an explanation of why she was out. She, 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 she's, she's, kind of for, for her late return, but also I think it shows his seriousness of providing for the needs of Naomi and Ruth. And this is what this is about. It's provision. It's kind of a, kind of a, a down payment. This is what you can expect. It's provision. And so we can see clearly that Ruth and Boaz, they're, they're trusting God in this. Again, we don't see God as clearly and as obviously in chapter 3 as we have in really even in chapters 1 and 2, and we certainly will in chapter 4, it's not as explicit. It's almost like this is it's just human scheming and strategizing, but God is in it. And their, their hope is in God. Their hope is not in their plans. They show patience. They show restraint. They don't get ahead of the program. They don't try to manipulate the system, the, the Goel rights. They don't go circumvent that. They, they do things God's way. This is what hope in action, this is what hope in real life looks like. You, you, it's uncompromising righteousness. We don't, we don't set aside God's standards for efficiency's sake. 
And to do what, this is clearly what God wants me to do, so I'm just going to get it done as quickly as I can, and surely God's okay with that if I tell a little lie, or if I, you know, manipulate, and just kind of, eh, you know, massage the truth a little bit, and, and go around this way, or, yeah, you know, I know, I know it's better that we get married, and, 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 and God wants us to, to be satisfied, so we're going to kind of set aside His, 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 what He says about purity, and, and we're just going to go and give in to some of the, some of that before marriage, and no, that's not, that's not, that's not hope in the Lord. A trust in the Lord. That's self-trust. A true hope in the Lord, a living hope and a living God, it's, it's uncompromising when it comes to righteousness. When your hope is in God, you won't, you won't resort to unscrupulous means of, of, of achieving God's will. And so, um, so, so if God wants Boaz to be the kinsman, then this other Redeemer will turn it down. That's how he's thinking. It's okay. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go around that. Hope in God, it does act. It does, it does, it is assertive, but it, but it, 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 it has no need to compromise morally. That's what we see. God doesn't need us to do His part. This is where we get in trouble. I think He needs us. He needs our, needs our, uh, kind of extra help. He needs our, 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 you know, working of the system. No, he does not. We never have to compromise. You never have to take shortcuts. You never have to manipulate. You never have to deceive. You never have to lie. You never have to threaten. You never have to do any of those things to get things done when our hope is in the Lord. Understand that. So we have to take action. We, we take risks. We, we're bold. We're decisive. But we don't compromise when it comes to character and to godliness and righteousness. Now, I, I don't know what situations you're in. and you're, Maybe you're in it right now. In a desperate situation. You see what seems to be a way out. Maybe a God-ordained way out. But you know what? It, it, would, it seems like it would be helpful if you could just make this little compromise. And you, you hear that voice, that temptation is there to just do things that maybe not, this is not, this is not how God has said to do these things. Not how God has said to speak and God has said to think and God has said to act. But I think that if, if I just this one time just do this, it will be better. It will happen quicker. I think this is a better outcome. The end justifies the means. That's not hope in God. That's not trust in God. It's not what it looks like. Well, you can imagine the restless night that Naomi had. Again, this is a risky, risky plan. Pacing the floor, probably tossing and turning if she could sleep at all, peeking out the window, waiting for her to come home. Well, when Ruth returns, she greets her with the very excited question, verse 16 again. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Are you his wife or not? (laughs) Did the plan work? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back, listen to this phrase, empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Now, that, might, that might slide by you without much notice, but that little word, little expression, empty-handed. We've seen this before in Ruth. We, we've heard something familiar. We've heard this word, and it appeared earlier in chapter 1. At the end of chapter 1, when Naomi, Naomi is in the pit of despair, 
She, she has this bitter outcry against the Lord. And she says, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. It's the exact same word. And here, this, Boaz has said, don't go back to Naomi empty-handed. No, it's full. She's, this is the Lord's means of providing. Bringing fullness again. Verse 18 She replied, wait my daughter until you learn how the matter turns out for the man will not rest until uh, not rest but will settle this matter today. This brings us to the last last thing that we see about hope and action is that hope and action it waits in confidence. Waits in confidence. It says wait my daughter. So Naomi and Ruth have already waited. They waited through the harvest and probably after the harvest. And it was, it was many, some time passed before they came up with this plan. But they did plan. They, they acted on their hope. But now it's time to wait again. We've, we've acted, but let's wait and leave the results to God, as it were. So hope in God, it's not passive, it's active. It's not, it's not risk averse or timid. It's courageous and, and bold and and, and forthright at times, it, it's uncompromisingly righteous. But when it's time to wait, those who hope in God know how to wait in confidence and just trust, trust in God's timing and God's ways. That's easy to say, very hard to do, isn't it, brothers and sisters? We are not good waiters. We are... We, we, we may trust God initially when some desperate situations say, ah, we gotta trust God through this, honey. And so we, so we begin to make plans and we act on them, but then when problems aren't immediately resolved, we, we have trouble leaving the results to God, the timing to God. We wanna force things. We think we need to help them out, we need to apply more pressure, we need to bend God's rules, we need to manipulate, but God says, wait. Just wait. Be patient. Those with a living hope in a living God learn to be patient and to wait on the Lord. That's what hope in action looks like. Waiting in confidence. We're all, every one of us is waiting on God for something. Some of it may seem relatively small. For some of us it's just enormous. Seems that way. Yeah, waiting for some answer to prayer that you, some prayer that you've been praying for Weeks, months, years, decades, waiting. Maybe you're waiting on a godly young man or, or depending on your age, older man, older or, or, or woman to come into your life. You want marriage, you want relationship, you're waiting. Maybe you're waiting on a job opportunity, a better one. You're waiting on a wayward child to come home. You're waiting on lab results. I mean, waiting. We're all waiting. Whatever it is, I think this helps us. Don't lose hope. You have a living God who is working. He's sovereign and He's good. He's orchestrating. And we get to see behind the scenes. We get to see split screen here and see the other screen, God's screen in, in the story and what God is doing and how He's working. He is just as active, just involved in your life today. So don't be passive. Willing to take risks, but willing to wait. Be patient. God is at work. And wait we will. We will find out next week <laughs> how the story ends.
see how this tension is resolved. Well, how do you, how do you need to exercise living hope in our living God today? I mean, we've seen again, we've seen God, God is at work providentially in your life, whether you can see it or not, that's been very clear in Ruth. And today we're reminded that trust and hope in a sovereign God does, does not mean that we just sit still and, 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 and just kind of passively wait and watch, but it also doesn't mean that we get ahead of God and try to force His hand. No. So, so we need, we need true biblical living hope, faith, in in action. What does that look like? And what area of your life today do you need to experience and express that more? What, what area are you really struggling to, to live this out? Where, where do we as a church need this? Not just individually, but collectively, corporately as a body. Where, where do we need to see this expressed more? And, and, and listen, it's not... This is one of the things you see as you begin to... We see it in Ruth and we see it throughout Scripture. A lot of examples and, and this is our experience too. It's not neat and tidy. It is not. It was not in the early church. I mean, you read through Acts and oh, I mean, it's not like they had, there was just this, this you know, linear line and the, you know, we're going to do this and then this and then this and then this. It's master plan and we're going to accomplish it, everything. Just in, No, it was messy. They're going here and God says, nope, not doing that. Go here. Nope, not doing that. Going to go here. Okay. Maybe, but it's going to, you're going to be you're going to be driven out of that city. I mean, it's, it's they're scattered and they're persecution and they're spread around. They're going places they didn't expect to go, and, and in ways, and they're shipwrecked. And and yet God opens doors, and it's it's messy. And it's been that way. Any, any disciple making, any growing church since the church began, it's the same story. It's 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 complicated. At times, it seems even chaotic and. And, and, but we gotta be okay with that. We, we have to learn to live boldly. To take risks, to try things, to make changes, to, to make mistakes and learn from them, to, to be okay with what we, what the world might call failures at times. I'm not talking about moral or doctrinal failures, but okay, that, that didn't work, but that's okay. Uh, God, God is, God is in control. He's over that. Refuse to compromise morally and doctrinally, but, but we can, Flexible and adjust and wait confidently on God. I'm always encouraged when, by all of our missionary reports, but I, I just think when John and Rachel come, he, he's always got those little charts that he puts up there. And it looks like by the time that everything's done, everything they're involved in, it just looks like my six-year-old just went after it with a marker and pen and drawing lines and squares. And, and, <laughs> and just it's just... it's. Just colors and shapes and charts and lines and it looks kind of chaotic, but it's beautiful. It's good. So we went this way, didn't work out, but what it did do is it opened up this relationship and so, so we started pursuing this and, and that opened up this connection and well then that got us involved in this ministry and it's great. And this is, this is what, this is what hope and action is not just waiting. Well, we, we, we trust God's going to open up doors in our neighborhood for the gospel. So we're just going to wait and see what happens. That's not hope and action. That's not it. We, 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 we're going to believe God to break open the campus at George State and the international students and we're just going to see. Let's wait and see. No. I mean, it's the same for us. It's the same for, for your life and for our church. In your neighborhood. It's just starting. It's just getting involved with somebody. 
may may shut down quickly, but but it, you just don't know. And so so we we need this kind of vision. I'm so thankful for for this church. I mean, I, I get to teach that connection class for our, for newcomers, and we'll have one coming up in the first of the year. And so if you're visiting with us and, and over the last several weeks and and haven't been part of that class, I'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that. But one of the things I do the first week is talk about the history of the church and in addition to getting to know everybody in the group. And one of my great joys is to see just the fingerprints of God's faithfulness in this body. See the beginnings. It was not, it was not like you went to a church planning symposium, Howard, is it? And you walked away with a packet and said, this is how you plant a church. Was it like that? I don't think so. That's not how I'm telling the story anyway when I have a class. And I've heard you talk about it. It's, it's God. It's working. It's these people and these relationships and opening it up and finding a place. And it was, it, and, and yet God was in it. And there were the formula, formula, uh, formulative years and, and in the growing years of the church, we just, we see his faithfulness. Well, I have confidence that God is continuing to work. I believe, I believe God not because of people or or because of any goodness in us, but I, I think the best years are ahead. I believe that, and I hope you do too. God, God is at work. Do you, do you see that? And, and more disciples made, and more souls won for Jesus' sake. More lives transformed by the gospel. Do we have the kind of hope in action that Naomi and Ruth and Boaz demonstrated here? I pray that we will grow in it. Because we need it. I mean, as we're talking about these matters of Vision 2020, these are huge things. And again, we're not entering to say, well, here's our plans, God, so you know, we're going we're gonna to do this in our own strength. No, these are us just, God, we feel like this is how you're working and doors you're opening for us. And we want to we wanna trust you and we want to go forward with, with hope and action. That's what we want, but it, 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 it involves risk. You talk about evangelism and being more active in evangelism as a church. It's risky to share the gospel with people you don't know and with people you do know. It's risky. There's fear of rejection and failure. But brothers and sisters, we got we got to go. We got to go. We got to get the gospel out. It's risky to to talk about more meaningful body life and community and relationships within this church. And it's risky to open up and to let people know who you really are and 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 the struggles that you really have and the joys that you really have and to to be vulnerable and and honest with people. That is risky. It's a lot more comfortable to kind of keep our distance and talk about sports and weather. That's risky, but it's better. So we got we got to have faith and action, moves and trust God. Talk about unity and diversity and what it means to prefer others in love and lay aside our preference for the sake of others out of love. That's that's risk because it's going to be change and change is hard and it's uncomfortable. Welcoming, assimilating others into the church. It's it takes courage to move out of your comfort zones and greet people that you don't know. And then to follow up with them and stick with them and show hospitality and invite them for a meal. It's risky. It's risky to talk about just really getting after world missions in new and, and, and further ways and giving more generously than we ever have before and grace promise. And I hope that you are, are, have or, or are in the process of filling out your car, but going and sending and supporting folks from our church and strategizing and changing and adjusting. It's, it's, it, we need faith in action. Hope and action. May the Lord help us. Let's pray together. Father, I, I, I do ask God that for any, anybody here in the, the, the areas of life where there just seems to be, they, they seem unsettled and um, 
it, it seems that because of the circumstances and how desperate they are, there's, there's a struggle. There's a struggle for rest in you. And uh, there's either a desire, there's either a desire to kind of by force of hand and of, of their own will to accomplish um, their plans and their timing, or there's uh, a temptation to just despair and just throwing up their hands and, and just walking away and, and, and bitter. And so I pray for everybody here that we would we wouldn't we wouldn't fall into either ditch. Um, that we would have hope in you, trust you, and and act and move. And so, Lord, help us. May our may our souls find rest in you and you alone. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.